Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. Welcome to Top 5, a show where we count things down from number 5 to number 1. And this week, from our Discord, that's right, we do have a Discord, Major Spoilers Discord, you can go check it out, a link in the show notes, we get the suggestion, Top 5 Movies That Are Better Than Their Source Material. This one's a tough one, right, Rodrigo? Yeah, because I don't read books. Oh, no! (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think all of mine... I think all of mine are based on books, but, you know, I guess source material, if you were looking at a Pac-Man movie that might be better than than the source yeah. material, that might be something you could throw in there. Or, sure, sure. Yeah. At least three of mine, the source material is not a book. Okay. Well, in some, in, in the broad definition of book, I guess I should say. Okay. We will now figure out what Matthew's broad definition of book is. But first, yeah. we will start with my number five, maybe my most controversial one is I think Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, <gasps> the one with Gene uh, Wilder. Wilder in it, is mm-hmm. much, much better than the book. And I only say that because the book gets into some weird territories, especially when <laughs> it gets into where Willy Wonka got the Oompa Loompas from. And it's not <laughs> quite slavery, and it isn't quite racist, but it starts to border on that very, very easily. Hmm. But the the movie, the what is it, 70, 60, 70, whatever 73. version. 73, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. No, forgive me, 71. Yeah, just kind of glances right off of that. Doesn't even bring them up, just says, oh, those are Oompa Loompas. They came to work for me. Without yep. getting into all the weirdness of imperialism and all that stuff. Um, plus also, the movie brings out that scary boat ride, which I never yes. got freaked out about it. I know a lot of people get freaked out about it, but I don't, but I appreciate it. So that's why I'm putting Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Also, because my youngest son last year had read Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory, and then I sat him down to watch the 71 movie, and he liked the movie much, much better. That's why it's at my number five. Well, I'm mad at you. Why? Because it's my number one. Oh, it's your number one, Matthew. Go ahead, please. It is my number one. maybe the first time in top five history where a number five on one list is a number one on the other. But here's the thing about Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. That movie distills all of the really good stuff of the book. It does get, I think it gets away a little bit from Roald Dahl's uh, use of the language, which is fun, but it's mm-hmm. also more kid-related and kid-friendly. But that movie has just the, the one thing that any movie needs for utter perfection, and that's Gene Wilder smirking. Yeah. So, also, 
Also, the movie keeps in the line, uh, snozzberries still taste like snozzberries. So you've got that going for you. Snozzberry, I think, can be used as a euphemism, but it's an actual berry. But nonetheless, the thing that really works for me about that movie is how it feels weird and anti-authoritarian and and kind of subversive and there's just wonderful moments where one of the parents is like oh my god do something do something and wonka no, who's just told the kids stop. not to do it yeah. help police murder yes. uh-huh. he told yeah. the kid repeatedly don't do it do not do this and the kid did it anyway and then of course you have that breakdown at the end where you stole fizzy lifting drinks you bumped into the ceiling which has to be washed and sterilized you broke the rules and so you get nothing good day sir I think you also have to keep in mind I said too good that day. <laughs> I think you also have to keep in mind that in the book they have the little oompa loompa rhymes yes. but in the movie you actually get to hear it put to music yes the music is lovely, and I really appreciate the music. And that's one of the things that Roald Dahl hated, I believe, was that his story kept being interrupted every few minutes for a jaunty tune. But the jaunty tunes are so jaunty. And I don't know about you guys, but I loved the boat ride as a child. Mm-hmm. I loved the boat ride of a certain age in college. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the watch Pink Floyd while listening to uh, Dark Side of the Moon thing. You can also do that just by watching Willy Wonka if you have a big enough sandwich. So I highly recommend it for children of all ages. And the moment that really sets this film apart as perfect is when you see the introduction of Wonka, where he's limping out Mm -hmm. and -hmm. everybody gets sad and quiet and disappointed that he's this old man and he's clearly injured and he stops and it looks like he's going to pass out. And Gene Wilder does his perfect forward somersault puts his hat back on his head and welcomes everybody to the factory. I love that because it's a genuine reaction from the kids. Apparently Wilder and the director did not tell the rest of the people what they were about to see. Hmm. So you see the crowd and the kids flipping out over this and part, at least part of that sequence is actual surprise on their faces, which I think is wonderful. Nice. So there you go. My number five, your number one, Rodrigo is Willy Wonka on your list. Uh, no, Oh, we can't get a trifecta. Oh, it would have been so nice if we could have had yours right at number three. That would right be at number perfect. three, yeah, yeah, yeah. That would be good. So, Rodrigo, what do you have for your number five? Uh, my number five is the 2004 Hellboy. And uh, as you guys know, I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Hellboy comics. So mm-hmm. you, you might be asking, why would this be on here? And I'm not saying that the 2004 Hellboy is better than the entirety of the run of Hellboy, right? Because it doesn't try to, it doesn't attempt to be the entirety of the run of Hellboy the way that, say, uh, Scott Pilgrim tries to do the entirety of Scott Pilgrim, right? Um, what this movie does well is take a pretty hefty slice of Hellboy, takes kind of the greatest hits from a lot of the volumes that were out at the time and synthesizes them into a surprisingly watchable movie uh, for something that came out in 2004 and was a comic book movie that, that used to be like not a thing that happened, but uh, the, that first uh, Hellboy movie really managed to take that source material, make it its own um, and kind of do its own thing with it. Um, while simultaneously cutting out a lot of the things where you need to have read volumes and volumes and volumes of Hellboy to get 
or appreciate. You know, uh, there's no Lobster Johnson. There's no um, a lot of the organizations, a lot of the gods that play into it are just not there, right? This is this movie kind of is there to serve its own purpose, um, but it's a, a very satisfying piece of Hellboy, which you know, if you read the books, you have to like read the books. So my number five because it's kind of on the line. Uh, 2004 Hellboy. All right. Very good. Very good. Now, Matthew, since we've already done your number one, we're going to allow you to do your number five right now. Well, that is very, very magnanimous of you. Yes, thank you. You're welcome. My number five. No, no, no. After you. No, no, after you. My number five is actually a movie that most people don't realize is an adaptation. or In the strictest sense, a sort of remake of an earlier flick. But Everyone will recognize when I start telling to you what moments in this movie stick out. Excuse me, stewardess, I speak jive. Of course it is. Yes, fine, I have a drinking problem. Splash right in the face. Airplane from 1980 is my awesome, awesome number five because it's actually a sort of kind of remake of a movie from 1957 called Zero Hour. And the moments that you see where Stryker is having his flashbacks to the war that don't make sense in a movie from 1980 are because the original movie is from 1957. Some of the recurring gags that you see where Leslie Nielsen is like, I just want you to know we're all counting on you. Some of the dialogue is word for word from Zero Hour, which is a movie that had uh, Dana Andrews, who played MacGyver's boss, and the only other name that I recognize it is Sterling Hayden. And I don't even remember why I know the name Sterling Hayden. But darn it, I do. He may have been in like Sunset Boulevard or something. But Airplane is super stupid and super funny. And it's one of the, I think it is the first movie of the Zucker Brothers. Or Zucker, Abraham Zucker, however you want to actually, you know, treat that. And it's the point where it's fresh and it's new and it's funny. And later on, you know, in some of their oeuvre, you'll get movies where literally the joke is we are going to redo a scene from another movie, but we're going to do it while smirking and winking at the camera. Airplane got that balance just right because there isn't enough smirking and winking to make it, you know, insufferable like, I don't know, Dinner with Andy Dick. But it's still hilarious. And the characters seem to be, especially Leslie Nielsen, seem to be taking it seriously. This, I think, is the movie that cemented Leslie Nielsen as a comic genius. So people today, most of the time, if you say Leslie Nielsen, they're like, oh, yeah, that guy was hilarious. Before Airplane, Leslie Nielsen was a minor league kind of square-jawed hero guy, you know, like we saw in Forbidden Planet. This movie made Leslie Nielsen, well, gave him a chance to be funny Leslie Nielsen which I think is the best Leslie Nielsen. And that alone means that my number five airplane exclamation park is much better than the source material. All right, there you go. Thank you for that, Matthew. On to number fours and mine, maybe not really a book, uh, but because it's a short story inside of probably a larger collection. This would be a Grimm brothers, Grimm fairy tale that you may oh, I was going to say maximum overdrive for a minute. Well, it could be, it could be that too. Uh, could be penthouse letters, but it's not. It is Grim Fairy Tales, <laughs> Snow White. Uh, mm. Now, I, the reason why I put this on here is when you read the original Snow White, and not Snow White and Rose Red, but when you read Snow White, 
And you get to the part where the huntsman has to take her out into the woods and the huntsman cuts out her heart. They describe it in the grim fairy tales, how he cuts out her heart, uh, the boar's heart, and takes it to the queen who promptly devours it. You know, that's pretty horrific. Uh, yeah. Then you get in the in the book, you have these moments where the queen disguises herself and she goes out to Snow White uh, at the uh, dwarf's cottage. And first it's like a uh, uh, cursed, um, what, what is it, the, uh, the, the lace bodice. That she presents, and that is too restrictive. And they get there, the dwarves get there, and then just in time. Then there's a comb uh, that's poisoned. And then finally, uh, it gets down to the poisoned apple. And the movie cuts out all of the really horrific stuff. I mean, the queen turning into the evil witch is pretty cool. And when she falls off the top of the mountain is pretty cool. But You're talking the 37 Disney flick, right? Yeah, 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 the Disney flick. Okay, yeah. The Disney flick... Brings in all the cute little animals. It's a feature film in color that people hadn't seen before. You've got some wonderful little musical bits. Uh, and you take out the the witch trying to kill her three times and just goes in for the kill with the the poisoned apple. Now, in the, in the book, I believe she bites the apple and she chokes on it and she goes into that to that sleep. Here she just bites the poison apple and she falls into a sleep. Uh, so the Grimm's fairy tale, in my opinion, is much, much better... I'm not saying Disney is great, uh, but I, I think in Disney's hands, it tones down a lot of the wicked, wickedness that is in that story and brings out some of the joy and hope in that story. And of course, the song and dance, because song and dance. So Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, much better than the source material at my number four. Now, isn't that... Now, I may be wrong, and I may be mishearing this, but my brain wants to say that that's the first time the dwarves had names and weren't no, just in the book, seven No, in the dwarfs. book, they had, they had names... But I don't believe that they were the exact same names as what we see in the uh, in the movie. My my brain wants to say that two of them were named Pot and Pan in one version. It could have been. It could have been. See, that's the problem when you get into the fairy tales is that they can be told and retold a million different times. Wow, well, um, like that time that Snow married the big bad bull. Yeah, right. I mean, uh, the 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 Grimm's themselves were going through Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, collecting stories, collecting yeah. stories. So mm-hmm. none of the, none of the story, like not only were these already folk tales that were probably changed a thousand times, but then they had to go through the additional filter of being written down. Right. And yeah, you can, you can bet that the Grimm's changed stuff as they were writing it oh, and, simply by virtue of, of transcribing things. Yeah. And, and just the fact that they're collecting hundreds of years of different stories. Right. Right. Uh, being filtered. Uh, so the seven dwarfs were first given their individual names in a 1912 Broadway play, but those okay. were different than the Walt Disney 37 movie. So there you go. Right. My number four, Snow White and the seven dwarfs. Rodrigo, what do you have for number four? Uh, my number four is, I, I think, inarguably a a better uh, version than its source material. And that's, of course, Space Jam uh, being a much <laughs> better piece than Basketball. <laughs> if you watch if you watch any basketball game like nobody gets squished and then blown up like a balloon uh nobody stretches their arm to to half court uh the tasmanian devil is rarely present so uh not to belabor the point but i think we can all see that space jam is much better than it's that in source material that's that's pretty good that's pretty good very good <laughs> rodrigo we'll let that one go uh yeah. matthew what do you have for your number four That is a perfectly legit canola he has there. My number four is the reason that I said 
not exactly a book because my number four is actually inspired by a comic book, which in my mind is an entirely different art form. You can be a writer of both. You can be successful at writing both. But I feel like a comic book is separate and distinct because it requires the visual elements to work. And my number four is a movie that works really well. It is a beautiful movie. It deals with loss and death, and it deals with realistic themes, which is remarkable because the comic on which it is based is an utter pile of papu. I'm speaking, of course, of Logan, the third solo Wolverine movie, third or fourth or tenth solo Wolverine movie, which is reputedly loosely based on the story Old Man Logan, which, as mentioned, is trash. But Logan uh, is a take on it that actually works for two reasons. One, it's a future of the X-Men movies, specifically and intentionally. And those X-Men movies at that time, there had been four or five of them. And taking this to its logical extreme, you get this weird, burned out, not quite Blade Runner, but very much a, a terrible future. And they brought back... Sir Patrick Stewart as an elderly Professor X, who's actually roughly the age that Patrick Stewart is in real life. And it brings in uh, X-23. I don't think they call her X-23 in the movie. I think they just call her Laura. But it brings mm -hmm. in a remarkable young actress whose name completely escapes me, Daphne something, to play Laura. And it's really a story about the end of your life. And it starts out seeming like, oh, this is going to be Professor Xavier dies and Wolverine's going to be all sad, you guys. But no, my friends, spoilers ahoy, Wolverine dies. He dies and he totally deserves to die. And he dies and he's dead. And there's even a clone of him running or two clones of him running around. But he is dead. And to successfully pull off the this guy is dead and it's really sad when you literally just saw his clone is a remarkable achievement especially when your source material is Mark Miller trash. And I don't want to be too hard on Old Man Logan. There are people who love Old Man Logan, and if you love Old Man Logan, I respect your incorrect decision. We can be friends if you bring cookies. But Logan is a wonderful story in the year 2029, starring Daphne Keene. Thank you, Rodrigo. And it is my number four, so much better than the source material. Yeah. Um, yeah. It just depends, I guess, if you're looking at that as the old man Logan stuff or not, but uh, definitely much, much better than any, the, but much, much better than any Wolverine comic I've ever read. Oh, absolutely. And the build up to the film, they specifically kept name checking old man Logan and saying, this is not the same old man Logan, but it's inspired by old man Logan. Very good. Uh, hmm. So we are, I believe, at our number threes. Number three, number three, number three. A long time ago, we had a podcast called Zach on Film where we would go through and we would look at uh, some, some films that Zach should have educated himself on, and we talk about it in depth. And one of the ones that we ended up uh, talking about on the show was There Will Be Blood. This is the uh, Paul Thomas Anderson movie about an oil baron who just, you know, has everything he wants and loses everything he gets, essentially. And it's violent and crazy, and it's weird. And then I hear, oh, no, this is based on oil by Upton Sinclair. And I had been oh. so taken by There Will Be Blood, I was like, you know what? I am going to read All of Oil by Upton Sinclair and just see where the comparisons are and see what was left out, see what can be added in. And I gotta tell you, ladies and gentlemen, There Will Be Blood 
is a very good adaptation of the first chapter of Oil by Upton Sinclair. Because after that, the book goes in places that the movie doesn't even go to, and the ending of Oil is the worst ending I've even ever read, and this is from someone who <laughs> says that I will no longer read a Stephen King book because his endings are so bad. Oil took me two and a half months to get through because it's such a big volume, and it's such a slog to get through. And then when you get to the end, and it's just like, and she died, and that's the end. And I'm just like, what? No, that... What about the teapot dome, dome scandal? What about all this other stuff? And none of that is even covered in the book. Which means that There Will Be Blood, the movie, is so much better than the source material. Now, people may like Oil by Upton Sinclair. It is a very descriptive book. It does get very flowery in places in it, when it gets into descriptions, and that's fine. You can look at this and say it's a fine piece of literature. I think What Did He Write? The Jungle is probably, yep. uh, the, probably a better book than Oil. Um, but There Will Be Blood is just good and so much better than oil that it's got to be on my number three. So there you go. Rodrigo, what do you have for number three? Uh, my number three is, uh, I, I think some people will might, might argue that it's not, uh, that the, the source material is better than the movie, but I, I feel that the movie is strictly better because unlike the source material, it's not humid. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, Pirates of the Caribbean. Because if you've ever been on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, it's like weirdly like cold and humid in there. And, um, you know, like I like animatronics as much as the next guy. The, the, song's, the song's catchy. Um, but it's a short ride and there's not much going on. And uh, the fact that they managed to extrapolate it into a, a pretty good movie um that that actually you know a, a, an actual pirate movie which had not been like a viable genre for like two decades um is is really impressive you know not not much there to adapt and and yet you know you you might almost say that it's really not an adaptation uh you know but the song is there and uh there is a dog holding keys in the movie, so that's at least a loose adaptation. So yeah, my number three, I think Pirates of the... Like, the experience of sitting down to watch Pirates of the Caribbean is uh, much better than the experience of standing in line in Disneyland for four hours to get into a boat that's humid and then uh, get all the way to the other side on, in, like, less than a, or like in a minute. So did you uh, do the ride before the movie came out or after the movie came out? I did before the movie came out. Yeah, I used to I used to live in L.A. Mm -hmm. So I've actually been like I, I was I, I went on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride multiple times on account of my Southern California discount to Disneyland. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So after after the movie came out, the the ride started to mimic more of the movie with the yeah. addition of Captain Jack Sparrow into the entire experience. And of course the toning down of the, uh, uh, the sexual harassment and other things right, that were right. going on in, in the, in the ride in the original sense. And it was much different after that movie became a, a, a big smash. That's I would still probably I've, agree with you though. I've never been back. I, the last time I went to Disneyland was before I moved away from LA and then I just, you know, haven't been back to any Disney park since then. So yeah, I just, 
I have no idea what it looks like now. I guess I can oh, go man. look it up online. You need to go do a Rodrigo road trip and go down to Disneyland. Rodrigo yeah. uh, trip. If have, you know. have some fun. And the nice thing is Disneyland is so small. You can get through most of that in a day. Yeah, I, I feel like that's a... Uh that's not necessarily a good thing because it's still expensive yes, to go is. to Disneyland. So the fact it that is. you can do the whole thing in a day is almost worse. If you skip the boring stuff like the Hall of Presidents and... Uh, oh, come on. Don't you want to talk to Warren Harding? No, he doesn't do anything. He just sits there and nods his head. You can talk to our other presidents like Charles X. Slattery and... Oh, man, uh, there I was know, a thing. I forget Willem what it was. Defoe and... Back in the day when I worked at Disney... Martin Sheen. There yeah, was yeah. a thing where you would go in... And like the, everybody, like a group of us, and maybe it's still a thing where you would pick the lamest president, like Polk, right? You'd go and pick Polk. <laughs> and when they introduce president Polk, everyone in your group just starts applauding and cheering. Like he's the greatest <laughs> thing in the world. And everyone else in the audience is just like, Oh, oh yeah, okay. Like I, okay. I, I don't get it. And then anytime that president is mentioned or does something, everybody just goes wild for it. So. Do nice. that the next time you go to the Hall of Presidents. Matthew, what do you have for your number three? What I usually do is I ask one of the presidents, why does the porridge bird lay his egg in the air? Uh, but that's neither here nor there. My number three, you say, question mark, is actually not merely my opinion. It is, in fact, the opinion of the creator. That in that many the ways, third best? Okay. The, uh, that the, in many ways, the adaptation is, in fact, better. Because he said specifically, after seeing the movie, I wish I had written, you're going to need a bigger boat. Mm, My number mm -hmm. three is Jaws, which is 76 or 77. I don't know. It's sometime in the 70s. Stephen King's big movie debut. And this is the thing. I grew up with old people. So technically, when I was 10 years old, I was 47. And I was reading Reader's Digest condensed books because that's oh, what yeah. was in the house. That's how you did it. And my grandmother had the one with Jaws. Mm -hmm. And Jaws, I don't know if you know this, the book, Peter Benchley wrote in some very heavy-duty sex scenes that my grandmother apparently didn't yep. know was in Jaws. And they kept uh, that in the Reader's Digest stuff? Yep. Okay. Including illustrations, my friend. Interesting. But, I, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, these were the, these were the old ones. These were the points, you know, where they were expecting adults to read them from like the year 19 something, something where you'd go to a restaurant and the combo meal was a hamburger, a cigarette, and I don't know, a cup of coffee. They expected you to go and read these, but nonetheless, I hated it because all of the characters were terrible everybody's unsympathetic. There's this weird side plot where Hooper is sleeping with somebody's wife. I can't even remember who. Oh, no, it's it's the sheriff's wife. He's yeah. sleeping where, with Brody's wife. He's sleeping wife. with that's Brody's right. wife. Yeah, that's, that's and, the reason and, why I was going to put this on my list is because the whole affair thing is horrible in the book. All the sex stuff and, is horrible in the book, and the movie's the so much better. Mayor, the evil mm -hmm. mayor is uh, hinted to be in the mafia. So he's not just a jerk who, you know, wouldn't close the beach and endangered people. He's actually in the MOB. Uh, but the fascinating part for me is that I remember very clearly that they took the boat out multiple times. So when you see Roy Scheider and uh, Mr. Holland and the Black King out on the boat, right, and the shark comes up and they fight him and then he comes up again and they fight him, those are actually separate events over several days in the book and there's no reason to do that especially in the movie and i feel like they streamlined it really mm -hmm. well they made a lot of changes 
the fact that the movie is successful with a busted shark and half a script is ridiculous and inspiring enough. But if you actually read the source material and find out just how much of that book is just not good, just not interesting, just not something that I'd ever want to see on the big screen, you'll find that apparently 1975, so my years are completely off, 1975's Jaws, my number three, is an amazing achievement in the cinema. If I remember correctly, and I have to go back and look because there's a big, long documentary on Jaws. I think originally they kept the um, the Hooper-Mrs. Uh, Brody relationship in the movie, but then they cut it. But if you go and look at the scene where they're all having dinner together, you can kind of get the vibe that this is that it's there, but because they had to cut all the other stuff out, it just feels awkward. But mm-hmm. if you watch it with the the with knowing that those two were having an affair, then it makes sense. And I I think they cut that part out of the movie after they had shot it. So interesting. But yeah, I, I this was my number five or my number six. Uh, but it definitely yes. crossed my crossed my mind as I should put this on here because I wasn't going to use it because I thought I would be stealing your number one, and then psionically you stole my number one so yeah I was so that'll teach you that you were terrible so i'll be curious to know time, if you, if you know what my off. number one is but my number two i'll tell you what your number one is are you ready okay surf nazis must die no that's not it my number two and now listen i enjoy philip k the dick book a is lot clearly better exactly yes. uh i enjoy Mine philip surfed. k dick a lot right uh Android, do androids dream of electric sheep is just weird I mean, it gets into a lot of questions and, and it kind of goes into areas and and places where you don't expect a book of this kind to go into. But then when you convert that book into Blade Runner and it's done expertly by uh, by the creators and the actors and everyone who, who put this together and you're really creating this dystopian cyberpunk future. Uh, I've got to say Blade Runner is much, much better than the source material. I would rather watch Blade Runner a thousand times back to back with no interruptions than to read do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep once over the course of a month. I'm not saying that that's a bad book. Uh, I've read the book. I've read the comic book adaptation when we talked about Blade Runner on Zach on Film. Zach had actually went and read the book and had a big long dissertation on the book. But I still think that Blade Runner, visually appealing, appealingly and story wise is a lot better than the book. Okay, what if you have to watch the 83 VHS with the voiceover and the bungle I, I like the voice. I like the voiceover. Okay. I, 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 will, I will watch that theatrical version. I like the director's version. I like the final director's cut, too. But I'm, I'm happy with the theatrical version because that's the one that I watched a million times before they decided to have a re-release. So, so yeah, Steven, that's... Yes, that's my number two. Yes. You come across a tortoise yeah, lying I, on its back. Why, why is it on its back? I don't understand. Do I leave it there? <laughs> Am I supposed to just let it suffer? Or do I flip exactly. it over? I don't know. I, I make soup. Rodrigo, what is your number two? My number two is a, it's a, is a Disney adaptation. Um, it is, in fact, The Sword in the Stone which I feel is better than the Once and Future King, which is mm, mm-hmm. the story that I believe it to be based on. It is. You are correct. It is. Yeah. So um, it's been a long, long time since I read uh, the Once and, and Future King, and this might be a situation 
where because I already knew the Sword in the Stone, I was going in being like, oh, this is the thing that the Sword in the Stone is based on, and then being like completely bored by it. Um, and I think it's because the Once and Future King, both the Once and Future King and the Sword in the Stone are kind of episodic, like meandering narratives. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the Sword in the Stone, there's like songs and uh, there's like a lady that turns into a pink dragon. You know, it's like the they're they're both similarly just kind of these stories that you already know where they're going to end. Um, there's no real conflict, no real overarching conflict to either of them. Uh, but um, the uh, the Sword in the Stone has the additional bonus of being a Disney movie, of, of mm-hmm. being uh, animated in, in a very charming way and having the characters voiced and, and, and the direction of it be like very cute and, and interesting. So uh, to me, yeah, the, the Sword in the Stone is, is much more entertaining than uh, The Ones in Future King. So interestingly, T.H. White, The Ones in Future King, is actually a collection of a bunch of short stories that he wrote between 1938 and 1958. Yeah. That then get collected into this one book in three parts. And some of the best parts that were in the original short stories don't appear in the book. Like the, uh, the battle between Madame Mim and Merlin doesn't happen in the Once and Future King collected book, but oh, it happened in the short story. Um, I agree with you that the book was so dry and boring. My mom had this as a book of the month club or something. So she had it sitting around. And I remember reading it going, oh, yeah, I've seen the Disney movie. I love the Disney movie. Let's get through this thing. And I could only get through part one. And at the end of part one, I'm like, you know what? I'm done with this book. And there's two more parts to the book that look at Arthur in his in his later years and et cetera. But, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, there is the source. I I feel like the once and future king. And again, I didn't know that that uh, that probably the sword in the stone had taken additional source material. That's good that's fine mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um but i i feel like the ones in future king continues to be a a classic due to like kind of like the like arthuriana fetish that like a lot of people have it's like this thing it's like you know it's like the american 50s and like you know arthurian times and like um Cowboy times. Cow- yeah, it's like the Wild West. is like these these time periods that people find very romantic. Oh, the romantics. Um, <laughs> so yeah, it's 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 this time period that that people are like really into, and it being mm-hmm. a book that exemplifies that time period, or, or I guess that leads up to it. Yeah, uh, people are people are real into it. Yeah. Also, um, there is more adaptations. Everyone is infatuated with the Arthurian legend right now over at boom studios. As of this recording, there's a series called once in future, which is the Arthurian legend told in modern times. That's cool. So yeah, but I think there's also night riders, night riders. No, it's a Romero movie. It's a Romero movie from about the same time as Camelot, I think, or not Camelot, the, uh, Excalibur. But it's a George Romero film, and it has um, the old guy, Ed Harris, from uh, Westworld. And he's part of this traveling troupe of knights in 1980 who ride around on motorcycles, and they're trying to live this this life of chivalry and knighthood. And they not only reference the plot, but 
in story, metatextually, one of their inspirations for being these motorcycle knigets is the Wanchen Future King. It's actually a terrible movie. I used to watch it all the time. Yeah, I you mean, should, you should go see it. Yeah, right now the the current uh, newest block of magic is an Arthurian legend riff. So, oh, yeah, interesting. I mean, it's it's all good. I, I like when there's there's it's like they they blended Arthurian myth and like classic grim style fairy tales. I think to give it a little bit more meat because when you think about like a, a magic fantasy game that's based on the Arthurian legend is like that's like the baseline of of a game it's like well what else are you gonna do with it you know it's like all games have like knights and swords and and a wizard right it's like you yeah. got to do something else with it they, they like sprinkled like uh the gingerbread man on top of it it's got a, kind of a shrek vibe yep definitely <laughs> matthew we have come back around to your number two what do you have or as I like to call it, the last one I get in this yeah, show. Thanks, unfortunately. Another one that, again, when I said quasi-books or whatever nonsense I said, I'm referring to comics. And I do that because I think on some level I'm still expecting a little bit of backlash. I expect people to be like, well, comic books are silly and childish and no one should read them. And in this case, it's literally true. Uh, because the comic in question is not just goofy, not just weirdo 90s stuff, not just a starring role for a minor X-Man as the new Wolverine of a new group. It's a tiny bit racist and very problematic, which is why the movie version of Big Hero 6 is so remarkable. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it eliminates a lot of the problems. First of all, the comic book is a starring role for um, Sunfire who is a, so minor an X-Man that literally, I think if you go and look how many times he's been an X-Man, it's actually less than the times he's been a villain in other stories. But at the time, Sunfire was kind of a big name, and he teamed up with the Silver Samurai, who was literally Marvel's other Japanese guy, and they created a whole new team, and the team consists of uh, Wasabi no Ginger and Gogo Tamago and Honey Lemon and a monster called Baymax, who's run by a little boy named Hero. And it's all just, I'm just, I like it, and there are parts of it that I enjoy, but man, there's some, there's some issues there. And Honey Lemon specifically is not just weird. She's very, very much a ripoff character. So... You know, it the producers of Cutie Honey come a knock, and I didn't point it out, you guys. But the movie Big Hero Six is set in a weird sort of 15 minutes into the future. Uh, I believe it's called San Francisco, mm -hmm. which is you know a multicultural city with a whole lot of really beautiful vistas and a gorgeous bridge, and it's got an emotional core that you never get out of any Big Hero Six comic book. Hero is actually a character who's driven by love on a number of levels, but a couple of other things. And of course, their breakout character, Baymax, who in the comics is a monstrous dragon thing with fangs and claws and a big green face, ends up being not just the cuddliest dude in the world, but also a kick-butt armored uh, mecha guy. And you have to love the way that they put this all together and they told a story and they made T.J. Miller somewhat, you know, palatable. And throughout the whole thing, I kept thinking, this is nothing like the comic. And that is so great. Yeah. 
It is yeah. so wonderful. You, you know, I, I can't tell you anything about comic book hero, but if you ask me about hero in the movie, I could go on and on and on. It's yeah. such a good flick. I so, mean, it, there really is like a, a very clear, it's like, it's an affection for the characters, which I, I feel is not present in the comic. Like yes, in the comics, it feels much more like they're making fun of Japanese tropes. Mm-hmm. Uh, than than anything like that, which is actually kind of one of my uh, pet peeves about Spider Verse, mm-hmm. uh, which is that uh, they is like Penny Parker is like a fleshed out character, and they actually kind of like dial their back to a bunch of like cartoon stereotypes. Yeah, um, D- different but, types of stereotypes. Yeah, yeah, from yeah, from the ones that she actually has on the con. I mean, I don't know. I, I I'm not a huge Penny Parker fan. Like, I'm not. I'm not gonna like. Sit, sit here and like pick a huge fight about it but i found that to be one of the few things that that kind of bothered me about about spider-verse one, one a small flaw yeah um, in an otherwise excellent movie. yeah yeah exactly. otherwise perfect movie all right we well, can't uh, say there's a flaw and it's perfect oh, oh that's why i said perfect. otherwise perfect yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah yeah we have now come to the top of our list for at least two of us um <laughs> big beanie and Matthew beat us here. He got I here. Know he did. He got here five, first for a change, right? Yeah, five. Yeah. Well, for me to beat anybody to the top of anything, you know, <laughs> there was probably some Red Bull involved. So my number one really shouldn't come as a surprise for many people, uh, but it's Jumper. Jumper, yeah. the movie, is so much better than Jumper by Stephen Gould. In the book. There is no secret shadow organization run by his mother trying to take David down. He doesn't meet Millie just by chance and they have a short encounter before her life is put in jeopardy. David's mom is alive through most of the book until towards the end of the book. Uh, Millie is a part of his life throughout the book and they actually have a major relationship going on. uh, Breaking up, getting back together, breaking up, getting back together throughout the book. There is an NSA organization that ends up hiring David to not go out and do assassinations, but essentially go out and find where the people are that they want to assassinate so that they can bring the assassins in and and take them out. But the book is so dry and it's so boring and it doesn't make hardly any sense. Especially when his mom is killed by terrorists and he has and David has to make the decision, oh, do I go and kill this guy or do I let the uh, let the authorities take him over. And then there's a sequel to the the book, which is even worse. Jumper really starts to open up this world of people with superpowers, and it could be the start of a great superhero universe, but it's just so poorly done in the book that the movie has to go in a completely different direction, tighten up all of the nonsense that is in the book, actually remove most of the nonsense from the book, and then add a reason for David to be on the run. And for my for my money, I, I'll take Jumper the movie over the book anytime. And this is from someone who read the first book and made it almost to the end of the second book before you, I said, you know what, I give up. This is, this is just dreck. And uh, went back and watched the movie again. So my number one, it is the best adaptation of a movie. It's better than the source material, and it's Jumper. Rodrigo, what do you have for number one? Uh, my number one is i think controversial because the source material is uh, one of the best regarded films of all time 
and that's Metropolis, the 1927 Metropolis. And the one that I think is better than the source material is the 2001 Metropolis, uh, the, the Katsuchiro Otomo version. Um, I don't know if you guys have seen it. I have. It's, it was a while ago. It is pretty nuts. And just from a visual dimension, I really like it. Um, you know, there's like a real Astro Boy-ness to it. Mm-hmm. There's a real like Android 009-ness to it. So if you kind of have those references in your RAM somewhere, um, it like that that is uh, that that makes the movie, the movie just palatable on its own. Um, it's you know it's a it's a movie for a different time. It's not trying to say the same things that Metropolis, that the original Metropolis was. It's saying different things. It's doing different things. Um, but for me, it just works on a sitting down and watching a movie level. The old Metropolis movie might just be too old. You know, it's like we make jokes about uh, on on our shows about on Shinandalu and Battleship Potemkin and stuff. But I don't sit down to watch on Shinandalu and Battle or you know, Nosferatu or the cabinet of Dr. Caligari for funsies because they're slow and weird movies that, you know, don't follow a sort of movie structure that is pleasant. Um, And I kind of feel the same way about Metropolis. You know, it's, it's doing its thing. And again, it's a hugely important moment in cinema, but if I'm actually going to sit down and watch a movie, uh, I would much rather watch the, uh, the Otomo uh, Metropolis. I, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. Ju- again, just on the visuals alone, it's it's really cool. It does do that thing, you know that thing. I don't like that thing, but other than that, it's pretty good. Yeah, I I, yeah, I would say not good. having watched both of of these and then uh, mm-hmm. Metropolis, I think I probably watched in two thousand two or two thousand three. Yeah. Um. So it's been a while. It is a much more streamlined story than the original. Yeah. Uh, I don't think it gets into the class system no, as much. No, no, no. And avoids no, a lot of the fact, let's fact, drown the city argue, moments. Yeah. You could you could argue that it kind of has the opposite, mm-hmm. um, like the, the opposite message. Yeah, it it is not like it, it really doesn't feel like a a stark critique of of uh, the the times the way that the the twenty seven one does. This one doesn't have doesn't seem to have much to say. It's much more concerned with its characters and the adventure mm-hmm. at hand. And the other thing, if you are watching this in the Japanese and you are reading the English subtitles, it's kind of similar to reading the um, the the dialogue cards in the silent movie. But again, the, uh, yeah, this is much more streamlined of a movie. So I can see where you're coming from on that one. Yeah, 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 yeah it's yeah. it's it's really funny. Uh, one of the things that that I like about it is that uh, it's got uh this organization called the Mardukes mm-hmm. um which is a a reference to like a Babylonian god um but because it's translated from Japanese in the subtitles like even though they're pronouncing them Marduks or Mardukes in the mm-hmm. in the translation in the subtitles that I have they call them Malducks mm. <laughs> So, you know, it's just like the sort of thing that happens is like uh, Krillin's name being spelled like 10 different ways uh, throughout like Dragon Ball Z uh, uh, media. Yeah. 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 Cool. Thank you for that, uh, Rodrigo. Matthew, again, if you uh, 
don't remember, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory was here as number one. And thank you, Matthew, for being part of the show this week. Listeners, what did we get right? What did we get wrong? What are your top five movies that are better than the source material? There's a couple of ways that you can let us know. Number one, you can head over to Majorspoilers.com and in the comments section, you can uh, let us know, type it out. Let us know why you picked that item. Everybody will read that. You can go over to Twitter and say, hey, here are my top five. Hashtag top five. Everybody will, well, read that, providing it gets retweeted and cataloged correctly. Or you can head over to our Discord server that I mentioned at the top of the show. There is a link in the show notes, and you can share your top five and get instant feedback from the hundreds of other people that are hanging around chatting in the Discord server. Why are they hanging out and chatting and talking about these top five lists? Well, I think it's pretty obvious, right? Everybody loves a list. Take care, and we will talk with you soon. This podcast is copyright 2019 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.